Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Levi Proctor, Assistant Professor of Surgery at the University of Kentucky. Joining us today is Dr. Rob Winfield, an Assistant Professor of Surgery at Washington University. Obesity is endemic in the United States and complicates the treatment of all acute and chronic ailments, including trauma. Dr. Winfield recently authored an article titled, The Critically Injured Obese Patient, A Review and a Look Ahead, was published in the Journal of the American College of Surgeons, Volume 216, pages 1193 to 1206. Today, we will be discussing the impact that obesity has on the care of the injured patient. Welcome, Dr. Winfield. Thank you, Dr. Proctor. You have an established history of research involving obesity, metabolism, and its interplay in trauma. What were the reasons for writing this review article? Well, as you pointed out, obesity continues to be present at epidemic levels in our nation and really in the entire developed world. Anecdotally, I think that anyone who cares for the obese in the setting of major trauma or critical illness recognizes that these patients are difficult to care for, and so improving understanding of why this might be the case is critical. There's a variety of literature on the subject of obesity and trauma, and our main goal in writing the article was to summarize the data that exists and explore some of the gaps in our knowledge that warrant further investigation. A secondary goal was to highlight the link between obesity, injury, and immune dysfunction, which is an area of personal interest for me and one that I'm actively researching. This is a very thorough article and well-organized. In your opinion, what are the most significant pathophysiologic differences that we must appreciate in the care of the obese trauma patient? It varies from patient to patient, um, kind of what is particularly important in terms of pathophysiology and, and uh, those sorts of things. It depends on the mechanism of the injury sustained, and usually there's a, a pretty complex interplay between more than one system. For example, if you take the obese patient who sustained a blunt thoracic injury with rib fractures and pulmonary contusions, obviously it's critical to understand the changes in pulmonary mechanics that obesity confers to understand how sensitive those folks might be to the loss of that little bit of reserve volume that may occur from their splinting from the pain of injury. On the flip side of that, as one tries to treat pain to promote good pulmonary hygiene, remember that the obese patient may have obstructive sleep apnea or the obesity hypoventilation syndrome in which they may have a heightened sensitivity to narcotics that can lead to apnea. And in giving the medications alone, we have to consider that their volume of distribution for lipophilic narcotics and the half-life of the narcotic itself can be altered due to the excess adiposity present in the patient. And this is just one example of how complicated it can be, and I'm pretty sure we can all appreciate the physiologic tightrope that we walk with the obese in this or other scenarios. So we're in the trauma bay. We're evaluating a blunt force injury in an obese trauma patient. Are there certain injuries that we should be more keen on looking for in this patient population versus the similarly injured non-obese patient? So obviously with all trauma patients, the, the obese patient's no different in this regard. You have to do a thorough evaluation. But uh, there is some literature suggesting that after blunt trauma, the obese patient does seem to be prone to more and more severe extremity injuries. And so it's critical to take a look at this. And I know from some personal experience that due to the size, this can be a challenge at times. And um, I've uh, even had a mentor in the past suggest that we should be doing routine extremity plane films to evaluate uh, for occult fractures in these patients due to the difficulty in picking them up on physical examination. There's no real data to support that, but at the same time, there's certainly some precedent in literature to suggest that extremity injuries are more common. 
There also seems to be an association with thoracic injuries, so it would seem reasonable to maintain a heightened suspicion for these types of insults as well. Overall, the literature suggests fewer brain injuries. Uh, however, this is debatable based on some more recent data in the literature. And finally, I would just point this out because it's one of my favorite articles, but uh, Saman Arbabi and uh, colleagues looked at this issue up at the University of Michigan, and they, they took a look at obese patients who were involved in uh, automobile crashes. And in that series, they found an inverse correlation uh, between obesity and intra-abdominal visceral injury. And they actually ended up referring to this as the cushion effect, and I found that fairly humorous, but a uh, good article nonetheless. <coughs> what about with regards to imaging the obese trauma patient? Is FAST helpful? Should we be more liberal with CT scans? Are there other imaging modalities that we should be considering? So one thing I would point out, uh, obviously the, the uh, FAST ultrasound has become a, a standard part of trauma. And when I was a fellow out at the University of California in San Diego, we took a look at this issue and uh, we perform routine ultrasounds and evaluations for blunt abdominal trauma in, those, in uh, patients presenting to the trauma bay there. And one of the things that we found was that when we took a look at all of our patients and uh, all the patients we screened for blunt abdominal trauma with the, uh, with the ultrasound, we found that our sensitivity dropped from 85% in lean patients to 63% uh, in obese patients, and it got worse with uh, greater obesity. And so although FAST is a great screening tool for blunt abdominal injury, it almost gets down to the level of a coin flip when you're dealing with an obese patient. So that's one thing to take into consideration. I don't know that, um, that there are other types of imaging that, that necessarily vary. I know that there are obviously some challenges at times when you have patients who don't meet the uh, weight limit for the CT scanner, and obviously that poses a challenge to all of us. Uh, but I, but I, I don't think there are, there are any additional imaging studies that I'd, I'd recommend as a on a routine basis in the obese patient. The care of the trauma patient requires many resources. Specifically in the obese patient, are there certain other resources that we should have at our disposal when evaluating these patients? For instance, do we need longer IVs? Should we put in more central lines? Do we need bigger beds? For the inpatient side, should we have things such as larger bedside commodes or bedside chairs? The data is fairly limited on that. I think we all know that the obese patient does require different resources. As you said, the bed, the bedside commode needs to be bigger. There are a lot of things that, that have to be different, uh, extra long uh, IV catheters um, or, or, or another example of that. Um, but the, the question is interesting in that often it's really not an issue of different resources as much as just resources that are similar to what we have for a smaller patient but have to be made larger for the obese patient. And the obese patient makes, makes all this, uh, these routine sort of things challenging uh, for us as trauma care providers. Just taking a look at the patient when you're doing your secondary survey, it takes more people to roll the patient to get a look at their backside. Uh, the CT scanner, as we talked about before, has to be capable of handling the weight of the patient. Uh, but really, the resource that we need most often is an experienced provider. When we took a look in our review article, one of the papers that we cite is from Sifri, and uh, he and colleagues asked whether or not intubations in the obese in the setting of trauma were more difficult or led to more complications. And they concluded that, in fact, intubation in the obese was safe and not associated with greater complication rates. But if you look at their data, and they actually point this out in their article as well, the majority of the patients were intubated by anesthesiologists, trauma anesthesiologists. 
And so obviously the, the experience of the, the care providers matter in these situations. And although it can be safely done, it's that experience, I think, that, that leads to the, the best outcomes. And I think the same holds true for many of the issues associated with the care of the obese and that experience and comfort in dealing with the challenging anatomy and physiology that they pose is necessary to handle the challenges. How do we go about triaging and caring for these patients in the rather disjointed trauma systems that we have? Are we comfortable leaving these patients at lower-level trauma centers for their definitive care? Or should they be recognized as being obese, be stabilized, and transferred to levels of higher care that are more comfortable and familiar with dealing with these patients? Well, it, as you said, it, it ties in very well uh, with, the, uh, with the question regarding resources. And what I think that the Level 1 Trauma Center offers is an entire team of experienced individuals who are used to dealing with difficult problems. Non-Level 1 centers often have talented people who are perfectly comfortable managing difficult situations, including those posed by the obese trauma patient. The difference at the Level 1 Center is that there tend to be more of those people, a greater ability to provide the necessary expertise around the clock, and that these people are part of a multidisciplinary team geared toward delivering trauma care. And so it's kind of a roundabout answer, but with, as with most situations in trauma, you're not in trouble until you are, and as ATLS suggests, if the needs of the patients exceed your institution's capacity or capabilities for any reason, you should think about promptly transferring that patient. And I think that the, the same remains uh, here. If you're concerned that the patient may have airway issues down the line and you're not comfortable with adjunct measures for orotracheal intubation, or if something about the patient just isn't striking you as right uh, or is making you uncomfortable, the safest and the best thing to do is to give the level one center a call and arrange for transfer. I'd like to switch gears a little bit, Let's get into some physiology. Resuscitation is a moving target even in the standard patients that we deal with. In the obese patient, are there certain resuscitation parameters that we should follow in this patient population as compared to others? Well, sadly, as is the case with most of the existing knowledge in trauma resuscitation, there's no perfect answer uh, to the question. What I would say is that CVP and cuff pressures are extremely unreliable in these folks, and so I would not count on them. The CVPs will be high. The systolic blood pressures will tend to be low, and the diastolic blood pressures will tend to be high, and that's based on some, some data from the uh, med medical critical care literature. Um, additionally, there really isn't one single value or metabolic parameter that's been shown to be associated with improved outcome. And in the case of lactic acid, for example, the meaning of the value isn't entirely clear. My approach with the critically injured obese patient is to use arterial blood pressure monitoring liberally. Uh, I watch the arterial waveform to assess pulse pressure variations, and then I trend SCVO2 levels every six to eight hours. If I'm not sure where I'm at or if things aren't heading in the right direction and I'm worried about the resuscitative adequacy, we think often about using transesophageal echocardiography or a PA catheter to see where we're at and see if there's something different that we need to be doing to resuscitate these patients. Unfortunately, there really isn't any data to support doing this, but I think it at least uses some reasonable logic. Uh, I'd also add that since those data are lacking, there really isn't a right or wrong way to do things. But I think what the obese patient and, and challenging patients in general bring to us is that we, ha we have to be aware of the benefits and limitations of the different resuscitation strategies and the different monitoring parameters that we use. In Kentucky, we take care of a, a lot of obese uh, trauma patients and critically ill. I want you to comment, if you wouldn't mind, on the use of intra-abdominal pressures in the obese patient and also being very mindful of mechanical ventilation, particularly on making sure that we're ventilating these people at ideal body weights based on their height. Are these situations that you run into at your institution or that you've seen, and how do you address this? 
Right. I think uh, both of these are, are, are challenges. The, the obese patient will have elevated uh, intra-abdominal pressure at, at a baseline, and that's been shown uh, by uh, Sugarman and, and L. And um, with, um, uh, with that, I, I think in the end, when I, when I end up using it, is really in the setting of ongoing organ dysfunction or evidence of organ dysfunction. So it's not something I r routinely advocate, but I think that's something that we, we really should look into because those papers by Sugarman suggest that that actually is the root of some of the organ failure that we see in critically ill obese patients, not necessarily trauma patients, uh, but, but certainly critically ill obese. And so I think that's an area that really would, would benefit from some further investigation. As far as the ventilatory settings, absolutely. We, we have to make sure that we're using ideal body weights for these patients. And the example that I always use, I think we, we've all seen the CT scan of the obese patient where you have the, uh, the lungs of a normal-sized person trapped inside the body habitus of a much larger person. And so it, it's a good illustrative study that for ventilatory purposes, we should be using ideal body weight when we set the ventilator settings for those folks. Uh, I do emphasize to them as well that because of increased intra-abdominal pressure and increased intrathoracic pressure, sometimes we do have to turn up the PEEP a little bit higher uh, to keep the lungs inflated. But, uh, but in general, I, I think you're, you're absolutely correct with your statement. As we all know, we cannot get better without good nutrition. I was, so I was very excited to read your comments regarding nutrition the obese that are critically injured. Often the assumption is that the obese patients have adequate nutritional stores and can therefore tolerate longer periods of starvation after severe injury. How do you approach the timing of initiation of enteral feedings? And is there a group of enteral formulas that are optimal in the obese patient? So I'm really glad that you asked about this because I think it gets at one of the most common misconceptions in the care of the obese trauma patient. People mistakenly assume that because of their excess adiposity that the obese are capable of tolerating long periods of time without supplemental nutrition. In reality, all these patients are often overfed. They're just as likely to be undernourished. And this leads to the condition referred to as sarcopenic obesity, in which muscle mass and hence protein stores are low, even in the setting of a total body energy surplus. Along with this, studies of preoperative bariatric surgery patients suggest there are frequent deficiencies in vitamin D, iron, folate, and B12. These shortages actually make the obese patient less likely to tolerate the stress and major trauma and can ultimately impede their recovery. So given that this is the case, to answer your question, I start as early as possible. Namely, once the patient's hemodynamically stable and not requiring ongoing resuscitation, I'd start thinking about enteral nutrition, either via gastric or small bowel feeds. If it's somebody with operative injuries in the abdomen, I'm aggressive about placing distal feeding tubes, usually through a nasoenteric route, if possible, because it's a reminder to me and to others to get things started. As far as optimal formulations, the current Aspen guidelines suggest that hypocaloric feeds with less than 20 kilocalories per kilogram of ideal body weight and high protein concentrations of upwards of 2.5 or more grams per kilogram ideal body weight per day. There are a lot of formulations out there that can be used to meet this goal, and I will take uh, extreme care not to endorse any of them. But uh, looking for formulas that have higher protein calorie to total calorie ratios is a good start. The protein calories in any of the formulations can be adjusted with scoops of protein supplements. And there's a lot of interest out there in pre and probiotics for the obese patient. And one of the formulas that's been developed uh, that's targeted at the critically ill obese patient has been developed uh, and it contains prebiotics. But as of today, the clinical benefit of this is theoretical. Overall, I really think that this is going to be an area to watch in the management of injured and critically ill obese patients. What are the take home points? and or future areas of research that need to be addressed in the care of the injured obese population. 
I, I would say that the two take-home points are these. First, the obese patient's challenging to care for and understanding their potential for unique pathophysiology is going to pay dividends for the trauma care provider. Second, there's probably a lot more that we don't know about the obese patient than what we actually do know. And the good news with that is there are a lot of directions to take this, but areas that I think are going to be important moving ahead are determining appropriate endpoints of resuscitation and ways to monitor resuscitative adequacy, as we talked about before, and then determining immune function and dysfunction present in the obese trauma patient. The latter has the potential to be fascinating because of the combination of known immune dysfunction in obese patients and their susceptibility to post-injury infections. Combine that with the fact that obese patients, despite all the problems and all the complications that have been discussed uh, regarding these patients, they may actually have improved mortality following severe injury and critical illness. This is obviously counterintuitive, but based on the data that's out there, there's some reason to believe that the immune system may be at the heart of this phenomenon and that the adipose tissue itself may be exerting some of those immune effects. So with that in mind, it's a matter of sorting it all out, and we're looking forward to tackling it at our institution and uh, also to partnering with others to solve a lot of these interesting problems that we were able to talk about today and talk about in the article. As the incidence of obesity continues to increase, it is going to become increasingly important that all healthcare providers involved in the care of trauma patients be aware of these unique aspects of their care. I would like to thank Dr. Winfield for taking the time to discuss these issues with us. This concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Levi Proctor.